The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Turn our attention today to the 19th Psalm. Last week, Pastor Robbie walked you through Psalm 18. It ends with this verse. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. The 18th Psalm is emphasizing and bringing to light the truth that is repeated over and over again in the Psalms that God's steadfast love endures forever and that his steadfast love has shown in great salvation to the king. And what follows in Psalm 19 is an explanation about the Torah or the Bible. And we've seen this pattern before. The first Psalm was about the Bible. Blessed is the man who his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he meditates day and night. Psalm 2 is followed by a psalm about the king. This is going to happen again. Psalm 118 is a retelling of what God has done in his steadfast love toward the king and to the coming anointed, followed by Psalm 119, which is about, do you know, the Bible. So this is a pattern that we need to wake up and see here that, that he is defining for us that which he is enduring and doing, his steadfast love. C.S. Lewis said of Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics ever written in the world. So with that in our minds, let's turn our attention to Psalm 19 and would you stand as I read the word of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold even much, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. O Lord, we come before you and we confess that you are holy God, that you alone are our rock and our redeemer. 
So I pray that the words that come out of my mouth now and the meditation of my heart and those who have gathered for the preaching of your word, that together they would be acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. The main idea that we're going to build to is that the redeemed rely on the perfect word of God. To the choir master, a psalm of David, this is intended again to be sung. Now you could argue that Psalm 19 is answering this question. Is there a God? Now that would be true in part, but there's something deeper happening here. David is not simply arguing for the existence of God. David here is proclaiming the glory of God. Now there's a difference there because we're not just talking about the fact that there is a God generically. We're talking about the God who has made himself known, the God who has made himself known in creation and specifically through his word. So the first thing we see, the glory of God displayed through his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The word for heavens here is the same word used in Genesis chapter one. I think this is incredibly intentional. Just as God begins his creation by creating the heavens and the earth, Genesis one begins by saying that the heavens, the sky above, declare the glory of God. They proclaim or proclaims his handiwork. In the Hebrew, this is the absolute active. This means this is always happening. The heavens and the sky are always making known. They're always proclaiming the glory of God. The word glory means weight or impressive. The, the weightiness of who God is, the impressive nature of who he is, is displayed for us in the heavens and in the skies. Now it says the glory of God. Now this is, this is important here. This is, I'm not just trying to be picky as a preacher. The Hebrew word here is Elohim, just like it's spelled H-I-M at the end, Elohim. This is the, if you will, the generic word for God, El. So anyone in the Middle East would have used this word, Elohim. They may have been talking about Islam or a pagan religion. They could have been talking about the sun. Elohim, that's God. So it says here that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now this is not meaning inclusive. This is saying that the heavens are declaring that there is a God and that this God is glorious. Now I want you to hold that thought because it's going to be important later when we see what starts happening in verse 7. Now, this is using personification. So it says, day to day pours out speech. That is the heavens and the skies, day to day pour out speech. They declare, they proclaim. Now, and when you walk outside, do you hear actual words? No. And if you do, you probably need help, okay? It's not that you're actually hearing words resonating. It's nonverbal communication. This is what the Bible's describing through the use of personification that the day and the night are revealing to us 
the glory of God. Even though verse three says, there is no speech, nor are there words. So they're not actual words, but there is communication. It's continuous in this ongoing cycle of day and night. So as we look at the multifaceted nature of God's handiwork, the real specific nature of how he's accomplished and done things, particularly as it relates to the heavens and to the sky and to the stars and to those things that we see, that these things are never ceasing from proclaiming his glory. So who, who, who's here in this? Where is this communication going out? Look at verse four. The answer is there. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. Now, how can David reach this conclusion? That everybody, regardless of where they are, are seeing the evidence of the glory of God. Here's why. Because everybody, regardless of where they are, if they go outside and they look up, we see the same thing. In the day, we see what dominates the sky, the sun. So watch his attention. In them, he has set a tent for the sun. Them is the heavens. In the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun. Now, I alluded to this a moment ago. You study almost all pagan religions. They're gonna have multiple gods, but the dominant God is normally always the sun. So what the Bible here is doing is de-deifying the sun. It's saying it's part of God's handiwork, that God has created the sun and he set a tent. It's a focal point. The sun is a focal point of his handiwork and creation. And he says, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs his course with joy. And these are images of, of, of joy. I don't know if you went to the beach this summer or if you did this, but here's one of the things that always astounds me at, at, at high school summer camp or even, I don't know, some middle schoolers did it this year. I wasn't there. Um, that these people who will not get up before noon will get up to go see the sunrise. Now, why is that? It's because of the, the glory, particularly over the ocean as the sun comes up every day. It's proclaiming to us the glory of God. And here's, here's, the, here's the image David used in the psalm. He says, this is such a, a joyful thing for God. It's like the bridegroom leaving his chamber. It's like, it's like, it's like the, the bridegroom the day after the honeymoon. It's, 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 it's like a strong man who runs its course. So up he comes with joy and the sun courses across the sky. And, and here's the image. It's like a strong man running. It's, it's like Usain Bolt when he comes out into the to the auditorium and runs his race with confidence and then wins with confidence. It's a strong man who joyfully runs his course every day. It's rising from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. It's sure it's gonna happen. It's a pattern. That's how they can tell us that there's going to be an eclipse like last year because the sun and the moon have different patterns as to how they operate and how the earth rotates around the sun. Then here's the conclusion, verse six. Now here's where we're building to. There is nothing hidden from its heat. All right, do you know uh, here in the last few days we've launched a new mission to the sun, NASA has. So they sent a, 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 a rocket went up from Cape Canaveral and they've sent out this device that's gonna go as close to the sun as we've ever been. It's going seven times closer than we've ever been to the sun. 
So I thought, I heard that, but nobody said how close. So I did some research. You know how close it's going to get? 3.9 million miles away. Now, here's what that tells me. I don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand. That means the sun is really hot. This text says there's nothing hidden from its heat. Now, if you're not reading your Bible in context, you read that and say heat. There's nothing hidden from its heat. That probably means God's judgment. You'd be wrong because you're taking it out of context. That's not what it means here. Heat is not always a bad thing, by the way, the heat of the sun. There's a reason there are 500 species of plants in Greenland and thousands of species of plants in North Carolina. It's because we get more sunlight here than they do in Greenland. The heat of the sun is a good thing. So what does David mean when he says nothing is hidden from its heat? Let me give you a hint. Read verse 1 again. There is nothing hidden from the glory of God. Nothing. God is shouting to us every day through his handiwork of the sun that I am not only God and not only that I created this, but that I am glorious. So what is the purpose of God's display of his glory through creation. I want you to turn with me to the first chapter of Romans. Romans chapter one. And read with me verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them. That is all humanity, if you're reading this in context. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So God's handiwork makes these things clear so that they are without excuse. So that means this. Everybody get this. You can stand before God on the day of of judgment and say, you know, I really wasn't sure you existed. That will not be an excuse. God gave you the sun and the heavens and all of his creation to declare to you every day, every day that he is God and that he is glorious. But here's what's true of man. Look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. This is what we do, folks. We change the glory of God and we worship idols. We worship something other than God. Now, Go back to Psalm 19 and let's get a clarity as to where we're at in this psalm. Now, this is crucial. Here's what the psalmist is saying. David is saying creation is sufficient to let you know there is a God and that he is glorious. However, creation is insufficient to let you know who this God is and the intricacies of who he is and what God has done for you and what God expects for you. So the question is, how do we know that? The answer is in verses seven and following. We know that because the glory of the Lord revealed through his word. Now I'm gonna read verses seven through nine. I want you to notice the repetition. Catch the repetition. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. There was one word repeated over and over again. What is it? Lord. Now we've shifted. We started out, the heavens declared the glory of Elohim. Now, the law of Yahweh. What does that mean? Why use the word Yahweh here? Lord. Anytime you see capital L-O-R-D in the English, that means it's using the word Yahweh. It is the proper name of God. It is the name that God gave to Moses. It is proclaiming God's self-existence and that he is the covenant-keeping God. He is the God who has made himself known through his word. Now, what follows here is a description of the word of God. It is to be taken collectively. We don't need to isolate pieces of it and say that's the most important part. It is to be taken collectively and to be understood by us individually and corporately. Here's what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now, I'm sorry I keep telling you what these words mean, but English just does not do justice to the original language. It literally is the word Torah. Torah does not just mean law, because when we think law, we, mean, we think things that say, this is what you're going to do, this is what you better not do. Torah is wider. It means doctrine, teaching, instruction. So the doctrine, the teaching, the instruction, the laws of God, they're perfect. They're complete. They cover every aspect of our life. And here's their purpose. They revive the soul. Only the word of God by the spirit of God can convert a lost human soul to God. So let me just say it clearly this way. Nobody's ever been saved because they looked up at the heavens and went, wow, there's a God. That's not salvation. Salvation comes through the knowledge that God has revealed to us through his word and ultimately through who is the word, who is Christ Jesus, the Lord. It revives the soul. It gives new life. And once it gives new life, then the Bible restores our soul. It continues to invigorate us and to press us forward in his life-restoring work through the Bible. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The word testimony means, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. It is a solemn statement made under oath. God has bound himself to what is in the Bible. And it says here that the testimony of the Lord, of Yahweh, is sure. It is reliable. It is accurate. It is permanent. So, a lot of freshmen went off to college. This is going to happen to a bunch of them over the next course, the next couple of weeks. They have strategically, this is not by accident. They have strategically praised professor, professors in freshman classrooms to debunk fundamental Christianity. And here's what they're going to sweep out from underneath these kids' feet. The Bible was written by men. That's all it is, just a corrupt man book. That really is the issue. And I'll just admit it. That is the issue. If the Bible is simply written by men, why pay it any attention? But if it is the testimony of the Lord, we have something entirely different. And the scripture says the testimony, the solemn statement of the Lord is sure. It's accurate, permanent, 
And what does it do? It makes wise the simple. You say, well, I'm not simple. If you just knew my IQ. Okay. Um, the Bible says God is omniscient. That means you can't chart his IQ. And as far as you're concerned, to him, you're simple. And I'm going to tell you this, after spending now 30 years of my life studying it, the Bible humbles an arrogant mind. You, you, you cannot read the Bible without coming away of understanding how simple you really are and how complex God is. The precepts of the Lord are right. Precepts means authoritative directives. So with authority, God is given direction. The authoritative directives are right. They are morally right. Now we need to wake up and pay attention to something. When I was, was a young person coming through college, it was a question of, they're still asking this question, did God really say, did, is it really in the Bible? And you know, just debunking whether or not this, this testimony was sure. Now the narrative has shifted. And if you're not paying attention, you need to wake up to this. The narrative now in the culture is that the Bible is immoral. How dare the Bible say something about human sexuality? How dare the Bible say something about marriage? How dare the Bible say something about a woman's rights? How dare the Bible meddle in your life? When the scripture says that the precepts, the authoritative directives of God are morally right. They're morally just. And what do they do? They rejoice the heart. They give joy to the inner heart. Now, let me put this together with an illustration. If you're sick and you go to the doctor, do you want a right diagnosis or do you just want a diagnosis? How many times your doctor said to me, you start out, so, you know, I've been reading on the internet. Uh, don't read the internet. You know what the doctor's saying to you? You read the internet, you're going to get a wrong diagnosis. I went to medical school for four years and I studied a little bit more than you. My doctor actually said that to me one time. I studied a little bit more than you. Here's the diagnosis. Now you want a right diagnosis because with the right diagnosis, you get right treatment. And with right treatment, you get healing. And healing brings joy. Brothers and sisters, why are we looking somewhere else? When God, when God has given us the right diagnosis, the right treatment, and when we look to those things, it brings joy. It rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Now notice it's not commandments. It's singular. The commandment. That means the entirety of what God has spoken authoritatively in the Bible is pure. It's undefiled. And the result of it is it enlightens the eyes. It brings light to the eyes. That, that's the image that was back there a few Psalms ago, that when life is leaving the eyes, it's saying it reinvigorates. That the purity of what God is giving us is, is encouraging us and restoring the damage that has been to us. Then verse nine, the fear of the Lord is clean. Now, what does that mean? We've got precepts, commandment, testimony, the fear of the Lord. What, 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 are we, what are we getting at here? 
The Bible is meant to evoke reverence and worship. The scripture is a manual for how we glorify this God who is in fact glorious. And the fear of the Lord is, is, is clean, it's uncorrupt, it's, it's pure. Now think about this. You go back to the Garden of Eden. Did Eve and Adam fear the Lord? No, not until after they ate. Then they hid. They didn't fear the Lord. Here's what they questioned. Did God really say that? Really? There was no reverence of what God had said to them. So what happened? They sinned and sinned. The wages of sin is what? Death, it's decay. So talking to my doctor a few weeks ago at my physical, I got this knot that's emerged on my knuckle. I'm 51, by the way. I said, what is that? He said, welcome to old age. <laughs> it's arthritis. It is not fun either. Somebody knuckled me today. I was like, ah, I'm decaying. I know a lot of you are like working real hard not to. It's coming. But here's what, here's what, listen to this. The fear of the Lord is clean. It's uncorrupt. It's undecaying. And here's what it does. It's enduring forever. So what God has given us here is going to remain in force forever. Then he says, the rules of the Lord are true. That what God has put forward, his determination of right and wrong, that's what rules mean. God has determined what is right and wrong. It is true. It's trustworthy. It is truth without any mixture of error. And it is righteous altogether. That means it is completely conforming to what is right, what is just. Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth. So when you add up all of the Bible, here's what you get. Truth. So I confront you with this before I come to the application. There are really two major choices that you have in this modern age when it comes to the Bible. Number one, is the Bible true and right? Is the Bible true and right? By the way, young people are being told how to answer this question outside of the church. And you just going, you know, make my head explode. I just want my kids to figure out things for themselves. If you are a covenant Christian, that means you are in Christ. God did not give you the option to let your kids figure it out on their own. Deuteronomy 6 says you are to teach them day and night because here's what's happening. You parents that are abdicating, your kids are abdicating all of it. And we're seeing this repeated over and over and over again. And they'll come to a different answer about whether the Bible is true. Because the second question I have is, what do I do with the Bible? If I said, if I did a survey right now, how many of you have read the Bible in the last seven days? We'd all be shocked. Now I'm going to submit to you why you don't read your Bible. Everybody look here and listen. Hold on to your seat because I'm going to make you mad. You know why you don't read your Bible? Because you don't believe, number one. If you really believed that the Bible was true and right, you'd read it. 
I stand on that. I stand on that completely. You say, well, that's kind of hard there, preacher. Well, let's press into the rest of the psalm. I have three questions. Do I desire and rely on the word of God? It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. More to be desired than gold. You ever had somebody say this to you, you know, you're, you're, you're so heavenly minded, you're, you're no earthly good. I've never met anybody like that. And I'm not worried about you getting there either. Because, because here's, here's what we're convinced. Why did Eve eat the fruit? You know why? She thought she needed it. She was convinced that there was something being withheld and she needed it. The reason people desire gold is not so they can have gold. It's because they think they need it. What drives the desire to the Bible is that you know you need it. And then there's this added component. It's sweeter than honey. It's desirable. It's good. It, 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 it has a lasting impression on us. Just like this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So um, we had four kids. My wife didn't have to teach any of them. She didn't have to preach a sermon like the milk. None of them. It only took one taste. That was it. And they wanted it. You know why they wanted it? They needed it. Like newborn babies, there's an essential nature here. Long for the pure spiritual milk of the words so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Conditional phrase. If indeed, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Do you get the implication? If you've never tasted that the Lord is good, you're going to have any desire for the Bible. It's not going to be there. But if you've tasted that the Lord is good, there will be a desire for the word. Second question. Do I rely on the word of God to reveal my heart and direct my path? Moreover, by them is your servant warned and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Now, we've all met the lady from Saturday Night Live, right? The church lady is so good. Is that what the Bible produces? Does the Bible produce the church lady? You know what the answer to that question is? No. Here's what the Bible produces. The Bible produces humility. The Bible causes you to discern your error. The Bible reveals your hidden faults. Those things that are either hidden to you or you think nobody else knows, the Bible brings them to the surface. I stand on what I'm gonna say next. 
People are like, I don't read the Bible because I don't understand it. I disagree with you. The reason you don't read the Bible is because you do understand it. So what's easier, what's the easy thing to do with something that's confrontational and speaks to the sin of your life? You either deal with the sin or you close the Bible. Declare me innocent. So God not only reveals our sin, he gives solution to our sin through Christ our Lord. Then verse 13, verse 13 blows my mind. Keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Now, this is an incredible admission of David. This is not self-righteous at all. Here's what David is aware of. He is prone to wonder. He is prone to willful sin. And here's what he knows. Only the Lord through his word by the power of the spirit can set him free from the dominion of willful sin. And the Bible leads you to that prayer. When the Bible prescribes the precepts that are before God and you know your own heart, then you cry out to the Lord, keep me from willful sin. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. When your kids are little, you better put this word in their heart. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it or guarding it according to your word. Psalm 119, 9. This is a quote. Could we say that God's glory is most truly glorious, not when it is displayed in the expanse of space? It is most glorious when his servant is in his or her closet, praying in response to the scrutiny of God's word. In that, God is glorified. <clears throat> Final question. Do you rely, rely on the grace of God revealed in the word of God to live for the glory of God? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let the words of my mouth, so what comes out of my mouth, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, how's all this coming together? How often do you do what your heart wants? Do you know the answer to that? Every time. You can argue with me, you just go ponder that. You do what your heart wants every time. This is why the scripture teaches that when we come to faith in Christ, he gives us a new heart. And this new heart is shaped by the word of God. So that our hearts, what is in our hearts becomes a desire of the things of God. And how do we know what's in our heart? Jesus said, as a man thinks, or, or, or that's Proverbs, as a man thinks within himself, so is he. But Jesus gives the illustration in Matthew 7 that from the recesses of your heart, the fruit of your lips is coming out. So what you say is evidence of what's in here. So this prayer, let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, leads us, this last phrase leads us to what the Bible gives us the conclusion for. 
Here's the only thing constant in my life. You ready? The Lord. I love you, but it ain't you. I've done a little counseling this week. I love my family, but it's not them. I've lived with them. And I can promise you it's not me. I know me. The Lord is my rock. Now, I'm not going to make you turn there, but you can do this later. Psalm 18.2 introduces the idea that the Lord is my rock. Psalm 19.14 ends, the Lord is my rock. This is the bookends of an idea. The Lord never changes. I do. So because I change, what do I need? What's the last word in Psalm 14? What do I need? A redeemer. A redeemer. You know what the key word in the Psalms is? Steadfast love. His steadfast love endures forever. God's grace endures forever. So here's what the Bible does. The Bible reveals who I am. More importantly, it reveals who God is, that he's the rock. And because I know who he is and who I am, I need a redeemer. Romans 12, one and two, you don't have to turn there, is the summation of Psalm, or an explanation of Psalm, not, uh, excuse me, 1914 in the New Testament. It starts this way. Therefore, I appeal by the mercies of God. It's not mercy, mercies. Here's what this reveals to you. He is an unchanging, merciful God. This Bible is not, this is not its end. The Bible is not intended to condemn you. The Bible is intended to convert you and then to lead you as to how to live your life so that you can say, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here's what we're gonna sing. The rock won't move. Now we're saying something about ourselves. You understand that, right? We're saying something about ourselves when we sing that song. The rock won't move and his word is strong. So let us run to him together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And as my voice trails off at the end of this day, thank you that it is a reminder that my voice will cease one day, but that your word endures forever. That it is bigger and greater than we are. 
And it leads us to the need of a redeemer who is Christ our Lord. So may we run to the rock now that is higher than I and find our refuge in Christ alone. We pray in his name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.